0: We are exposed to millions of microorganisms every day, but we don't fall sick that often. It is because our immune system is working hard in the background to keep us safe without us even knowing it. We will discuss how this happens in this podcast. Stay tuned. Welcome to antibodies this is the second episode of the immunology 101 series hey autumn you remember how we kept everything simple in the first episode and only brushed through the surface since it was our pilot episode
1: yes
0: yeah we're not doing that today (laughs) today we'll dive deeper into immunology and learn some intricacies of the immune system.
1: Our first episode was quite basic, and hopefully everyone was able to understand how the birth of immunology as a field of study was brought about by efforts of certain pioneering scientists. As we go further from here, things are gonna get a little complex, just like our immune
0: systems. That's right. What should the listeners expect to learn from today's episode?
1: By the end of today's episode, our listeners will have a clear understanding about active and passive immunity, humoral and cellular immunity, and innate and adaptive immunity.
0: Oh, those sound like a lot of terms to remember, (laughs) but I'm ready.
1: Okay, good. But right before we start, we need to define some basic terms for the audience. So the first one is serum, which means It's the non-cellular, non-clotting part of the blood.
0: So if I took blood out of my veins and removed all the clotting components, which includes the platelets, Mm -hmm. and the blood cells, which includes the red blood cells, Mm -hmm. the remaining fluid will be called serum, is that right?
1: That's exactly right. Okay. The next term is humor. Hey, I mean, I know what that
0: means. (laughs) That means the quality of being funny
1: Technically, you're right, but there is another meaning of the word humor, which means body fluid.
0: Oh, okay. I I didn't know that.
1: Just a little different than the other meaning. Um, The next term is antigen. And that means anything that can be recognized by the immune system, mostly it's things that are foreign to the immune system.
0: Uh, foreign, can you, can you give me an example?
1: Yeah, like bacteria, viruses, pollen.
0: Okay, so anything that's not me would mostly be an antigen.
1: Exactly, but it's, it's Anything that your immune system can recognize. Okay.
0: So okay. so there is some nuance there.
1: There's some nuance and it could be, you know, it gets more complicated. We'll, we'll explain it further. Okay.
0: Uh, in the last episode, we talked about the birth of vaccines and how they fueled research in the field of immunology. However, one cannot ignore the backlash vaccines have received in the recent years by the group of people called anti-vaxxers. Autumn, if vaccines are so useful, what is this outcry for?
1: Okay, that's a great question. In 1997, there was a study published by a British surgeon in the prestigious journal Lancet that pointed out that vaccines for measles, mumps, and rubella could be increasing the cases of autism in British children. So the MMR vaccine is, required to go to school in most locations, in the US at least. So that was causing a lot of concern.
0: But autism, I mean, autism is a big deal. That sounds like a very serious argument for not vaccinating your children.
1: Yeah, it it really does until you find out that the study was completely discredited because it had experimental errors, financial conflicts of interest, and ethical violations. (laughs) (laughs) They're going back to those prisoners and orphans. Mm -hmm. And the author of the paper lost his medical license after that, and his research article was retracted, which means it was taken back out of the journal. But the damage was already done, and the anti-vax movement had started. So, due to this movement, several studies were conducted in recent years to find the truth, and guess what? They do not cause autism. And
0: oh, I'm surprised.
1: <laughs> I, I, yeah, after the, that horrible article. Um, the problem with these outcries is that it takes time and money away from the real issues that actually plague our existence. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I hope that clarifies the confusion about anti-vaxxers and vaccines.
0: Right there. So yeah, why not? Why shouldn't we uh, spend more money in proving that the earth is not flat? Isn't that something <laughs> that you would like to confirm?
1: <laughs> I mean, I, let's ask Galileo about yeah. that. <laughs> but with that being said, we can dive into the second episode of the Immunology 101 series.
0: We'll continue right where we left in our previous episode. While Pasteur found out about attenuated life vaccines, he still didn't know how they worked. How is the vaccine training our immune system to get rid of those pathogens before they could make us sick? What are the specific components of the immune system that take part in maintaining um, immunity? The search for answers continued.
1: All right. Enter Emil von Behring and Kida Sato. Bering had graduated in medicine from Berlin and became a lecturer at the Army Medical College. During the late 19th century, he was working in the Koch Institute of Hygiene, training to treat diphtheria and tetanus infections. There, he, gl- he collaborated with
0: Shibasaburo, Sub- <laughs> Shiba was
1: that? Yeah, <laughs> Sato a student of Dr. Robert Koch.
0: <laughs> well, it's fine, the name is difficult.
1: <laughs> I'm, I'm sorry, Dr. <laughs> <Kira> Sato. <laughs>
0: also, do you call him Koch or Kosh? What do you call him? K O C H.
1: I usually just read his name. <laughs> <So>. <laughs>
0: because, because I've always thought that he is called Kosh. Okay, that and, and sounds like a better <laughs> name. Okay, we'll, we'll continue with that. Okay, so uh, yeah, I've, and, and I have heard about Robert Kosh. I mean, he's a big name in microbiology and immunology. I know if anybody. Took, ever took the microbiology course, he probably knows the name Robert Kosh.
1: Yes, he is, and we'll probably talk about him in a future episode. But for now, coming back to the story, Bering and Kosh's student Kitasato Sato showed that serum from an animal who was infected with tetanus could be transferred to another animal to provide immunity.
0: Oh! that. That sounds wonderful. So <laughs> Bering and Kitasato proved that just by transferring the non-cellular part of the blood from an immune to non-immune individual, you can make people immune. That, it, doesn't that, doesn't it sound like vaccines?
1: The idea is like vaccines, but it's actually very different. And we will discuss this later in the episode.
0: Uh, just on a side note, have you ever wondered about the plural form of serum, <laughs> <laughs> it's called sera?
1: What's weird about that?
0: <laughs> I mean, serum is is a liquid. How <laughs> does serum have a plural? Have you, have you ever heard people saying waters or milks? <laughs> that, does, that should not exist.
1: <laughs> that, now that I think about it, that does sound strange. But in Spanish, <laughs> they have the plural form of water. Las aguas. Yeah. las aguas yeah that's how i learned that that word was actually feminine i thought i was oh. anyway
0: but why are we saying Sarah in in english <laughs>
1: <laughs> i don't know that that part does not track anyway um, we will continue this conversation in english grammar 101 if we ever have time to do that series okay
0: i'm very much looking forward to that <laughs>
1: <laughs> we'll try <laughs> um coming back to Bering's discovery He was awarded the first Nobel Prize in Physiology and Medicine for this discovery. And if you go to the official website, nobelprize.org, his prize achievement is named Passive aggressive treatment.
0: (laughs) Passive aggressive treatment.
1: Passive aggressive. That's
0: very weird.
1: It's it's weird. Um, Maybe they're being passive aggressive (laughs) towards Barry. Yeah, maybe
0: maybe somebody in the committee did not like.
1: (laughs) They were against his work.
0: (laughs) But yeah, anyway, uh, this brings us to the next big question what was in the serum that could confer immunity because I know the serum is a mixture of a lot of proteins Mm -hmm. and other molecules.
1: Right. Let me tell you, um, in the early 20th century, Elvin Kabat showed that there were molecules in the serum called antibodies that were responsible for conferring this immunity. He called it humoral immunity.
0: And that's because humor also means liquid, which I, which <laughs> I just learned today. <laughs> therefore, exactly. therefore, humoral immunity is the immunity that comes from the liquid non-cellular part of the blood, which is called serum.
1: Exactly, specifically non-cellular. So this is great, now we know that humoral, um, the humoral part of the blood is responsible for immunity in some way, and that must mean the cellular part of the blood has nothing to do with immunity, right? No, stop, stop right there.
0: (laughs) Your statement just made Eli Mechnikov turn in his grave.
1: (laughs) Eli Mechnikov, who's that?
0: Well, even even before humoral immunity and the contribution of serum was discovered, a Russian scientist named Eli Mechnikov proposed that cells actually have an important role in immunity. He he was definitely against the idea that components of serum were the only part of immunity. Metchnikoff saw that there were cells which were more active in patients that had been immunized or vaccinated and he called these cells phagocytes. Phago means eating, site means cell. Phagocyte is a cell that eats. Phagocytosis is basically the cell subversion of eating. It's the noun form. Okay. <laughs> uh, so Mechnikov mm-hmm. noticed that these cells were just eating everything that needed to be ingested or cleared from the body, especially in the people who were Im- immunized. So he correlated that the vaccination was causing these cells to be more active, and it was very likely that these cells were the reason behind the immunity. Oh, okay. And originally, originally, it was proposed as an alternative theory to humoral immunity. And well, despite everybody else being a pro-humoral immunity person <laughs> in that in that era, Metznikov was still awarded the third Nobel Prize in medicine for these observations.
1: All right, third Nobel Prize. He went against the flow and still managed to prove his point.
0: Yes, but <laughs> despite his findings about cellular immunity, Research into humoral immunity was more advanced, because they were, people were able to get the blood from different animals and use, use it to test and purify proteins, like antibodies, using established methods at the time, whereas cellular immunity did not have easy methods to purify and grow cells to study.
1: Okay, so you're saying that people did not have the means to study cells, so therefore there was no way to show how important they were in the context of immunity.
0: Exactly, and, okay. and that's why most people believe that humoral immunity was more important than cellular immunity, but the truth was we just did not have the tools to study cellular immunity.
1: Okay, so is that why no one wants to discuss my research project now because I work with cellular immunity?
0: Oh no, that, it's just because you're weird.
1: Okay, well. <laughs> (laughs) I'll privately take offense to that, but for now, we'll continue on. (laughs) Okay then, so how did cellular immunity make a comeback and gain interest again?
0: Thank you for asking. (laughs) Let me tell you a short story. Even though you are the cellular immunologist, I'll take the lead here.
1: (laughs) Okay. So
0: Robert Koch, or Kosh, (laughs) we'll we'll let the uh, listeners decide which one is the better pronunciation. (laughs) Robert, for now, (laughs) had received the second Nobel Prize in medicine for discovering the pathogen that caused tuberculosis. And this was a major breakthrough because people were finally beginning to understand what was the cause of uh, tuberculosis. With this knowledge, Two immunologists at the Rockefeller Institute in New York, Merrill Chase and Carl Landsteiner, were working hard to figure out if immunity towards tuberculosis from guinea pigs who were immune could be transferred to non-immune guinea pigs.
1: Guinea pigs, why didn't they just try prisoners and orphans? Yeah, <laughs> well I
0: think we had become more humane then.
1: Okay, well that's that's good at least.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so it was known at that time that you could transfer serum from an animal, from an immune animal to another to make them immune too. As we discussed before, mm-hmm. uh, when Chase tried to replicate this in tuberculosis in guinea pigs, you won't believe what happened.
1: What? <laughs> he Tell failed, me. he failed. Oh no, that never happens in science. <laughs> yeah, <Ooh>. <laughs> <laughs> um, How is that possible though? The transfer of CRM should have made the guinea pigs immune to tuberculosis, just like Bering and Ketisato proved previously with tetanus.
0: Yes, as unfortunate as it was, these results did suggest that humoral immunity cannot be the only way our immune system works. And here comes a situation I was talking about in the first episode. Do you remember that quote from the QB immunology book?
1: Was it, with great power comes great responsibility?
0: (laughs) No, no, that's Spider-Man.
1: Oh, I always get them confused. You're watching too much
0: of (laughs) (laughs) Spider-Man. The quote was, as so often happens in science, serendipity in combination with astute observation leads to major advancements. Okay. So just like the mistake made by Pasteur's assistant led to the discovery of attenuated vaccines, another paradigm-changing mistake was made. Chase tried to transfer serum from tuberculosis immune guinea pigs to non-immune guinea pigs, but his preparation of serum from the blood was imperfect. It turned out that some of the cellular part remained in the serum, when he transferred this imperfect serum, which also contains some cells, mm-hmm. he found that the immunity was indeed transferred.
1: Ooh. This was
0: a clear evidence that the cellular part of the immune system is also important for immunity. The experiments done by Chase showed that cellular immunity is real and it works differently from humoral immu- immunity. You could think of humoral immunity as being more of immediate like when the serum is transferred. Okay. While cellular immunity is delayed, but in the end, they both work together to mount an immune response that can help clear an infection most effectively.
1: Okay, I bet um, after this discovery, <laughs> Metchnikoff was running around the streets with a big banner saying, I told you so, I, I told I'm you sure, so. I,
0: I'm sure he was because when he <laughs> brought up the topic of cellular immunity, everybody thought like he, he does not make any sense.
1: Right. <laughs> But yeah,
0: thankfully people started to care about cellular immunity. This discovery also led to the better cell cultured methods, which we both use in our labs today.
1: Yay, cells! (laughs) Being an active cellular immunologist, let me step in here. Something to note here is that the transfer of cells, as Chase and Landsteiner showed, doesn't usually work. And that's because our immune system has the capability to identify self from non-self or foreign cells. So if I were to receive blood from another individual, in most cases, my immune system will respond against the antigen present in the donor's blood and try to get rid of it. However, I personally am lucky because my blood type is AB positive, so I can receive any blood. So look out, I'm gonna take your blood.
0: So you're you're very lucky.
1: I am lucky. So anyway, um, Carl Landsteiner discovered That there are different possibilities of red blood cell antigens and everyone has one set or another of these blood antigens. He called them A or B or O. Mm -hmm. (laughs) An individual could have antigen A or B or both of them or even none of them and that's where our blood groups come from and he was awarded the nobel prize for this discovery and his work allows us to transfuse blood to people in need without upsetting their immune system
0: oh and i know it's not related to immunology that Mm -hmm. much but just so if you have the antigen a and b you're a b positive which is you Mm -hmm. and if you have none of them, you would be O positive. Is it like that?
1: So it's like that, except the positives and negatives are from a different group that we're not gonna go into. Okay, so there's a
0: third antigen as well
1: exactly right. so there's um the a b and o and then there's also the rhb and other stuff okay. that and
0: affects. we will talk about that in our new series called red blood cells 101
1: <laughs> One hundred and one. <laughs> yeah
0: But we, any, anyway yeah let's come back to the immunology okay
1: our immune system learns to ignore or tolerate certain antigens that are part of our body this is required for coexistence of different kinds of cells Do you know what happens when this tolerance towards self-antigens is broken? Hey, I know that. (laughs) This
0: is called autoimmunity, where our immune system starts attacking our own body. Ooh. In fact, autoimmunity is a fascinating topic, and that's what I work on. I would love to discuss it in great detail in a future episode.
1: Okay, maybe in a future episode. (laughs) This is also the perfect time to talk about two important terminologies, active immunity and passive immunity. You must have heard this quote, give a man a fish and you will feed him for a day. Teach a man to fish and you will feed him forever. Here, passive immunity is giving the man a fish. It results in an immediate response, but only results for short-term immunity. One example of passive immunity is the transfer of serum from an immune to a non-immune individual. Mm -hmm. By the way, this is also called passive vaccination. Hey, I didn't know that. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. Okay. Um, the transfer of serum doesn't train the immune system to make more of that serum. The immunity only lasts as long as that transferred serum stays in our blood. Okay. On the other side, teaching the man to fish embodies active immunity. It is slow but provides long-term protection. The immunity conferred by vaccination is called active immunity. In fact, the correct term for what we typically called vaccination is actually active vaccination
0: so we have all been saying it wrong
1: we've all been saying it wrong this whole time <laughs> we should have been saying active vaccination
0: okay
1: and so next time you get your flu shot say you want some active, active vaccination, vaccination.
0: Okay. Yeah. <laughs> yeah nurses are dumb sometimes.
1: <laughs> <laughs> the nurse will love it <laughs> um and the components of the vaccine are actively training our immune system to identify and kill the pathogens And that's why children are given vaccines early in their lifetime, so that they can enjoy immunity towards certain diseases for the rest of their lives. And for this podcast, and also generally when people talk about vaccination, they mean active vaccination, but also nurses are extremely important and we would all be dead without them Yes. and we're the stupid ones, so they have to dumb it down and that's say right. vaccination <laughs> for us. Yes, <laughs>
0: yes. That's, that's completely true. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so a big question that comes in mind is if vaccination is so great. Why don't we have vaccines against every disease-causing pathogen that exists?
1: Okay, that's a really interesting question. So once we understand how our immune system works, we'll better be equipped to answer that question. Mm -hmm. And that's why we're doing this podcast series, to clearly explain the fundamental concepts so we can later discuss some of the nuances of the immune system.
0: Okay. I'm, I'll, I'll wait for that time.
1: <laughs> <laughs> yeah, you'll you'll learn later. <laughs> I'll learn. I'll
0: yeah. learn as I write. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so another question uh, that I want to put out there: We know that antibodies in the serum play a big role in providing humoral immunity, but antibodies are proteins, and as we know from the central dogma of biology, proteins do not appear out of nowhere. Some cell in our body must be using a gene transcribing it to a messenger RNA, and then be making this protein that we're calling antibody. My question is, who or which cell type in our body is making these antibodies?
1: So that is such a good question. I'm so glad you asked that. Antibodies are made by a specific type of immune cell called a B cell. B cells can make them as a soluble form and a membrane-bound form. So the type that you're um, talking about Um, with antibodies in the serum, Mm -hmm. that would be the soluble form. Mm -hmm. So that means that uh, the b cell can either produce the antibody and let it go into the blood or it can keep the antibody attached to itself like a membrane-bound receptor
0: so a b cell can do both of them it can do both of those okay, things that's that's cool
1: yeah it, it has it has a lot of work to do just like mm-hmm. a grad student um, and to answer your next question antibodies work specifically by binding to the antigens and alerting the immune system about their presence
0: you said you used the word specifically that means for every antigen that exists there could be an an individual antibody that's unique to that uh, antigen but if i know right there are like million like trillions <laughs> of combination of antigens that exist how do how do antigen how do antibodies specifically distinguish between these a vast number of antigens.
1: So this was a huge question during the 20th century as well, and immunologists wanted to know what was going on, similar to us. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Initially, two theories were proposed to predict how antibodies bound to the antigens: the selective theory and the instructional
0: theory. So people put out two theories to explain how antibodies could bind to these this variety of antigens that present.
1: Right. They okay. knew that there's these trillions of Mm -hmm. potential antigens so they wanted to know what's happening how can we
0: explain this okay so and what are these two theories exactly
1: okay so the two the selective and the instructional theories um paul ehrlich Mm-hmm. Who knows if I'm pronouncing it right? <laughs> was a well,
0: Erik, yeah. I I I I'll, <laughs> I'll join you. Okay. Erl- Erlik.
1: Okay. Erlik yes. was a proponent of the selective theory which originated as early as the 20th century. The selective theory stated that our body already has B cells that could produce antibodies specific to antigens way before we were exposed to that antigen. Ehrlich proposed that antibodies bound to antigens like a lock and key mechanism. And for every antigen, there would be a specific antibody that could bind to that antigen. Mm-hmm. He also stated that once the antigen entered our body and bound to the antibody, the B cell that has this antibody on its membrane would then produce even more of the antibody in soluble form to fight this antigenic attack.
0: Oh, that sounds like a very detailed hypothesis, or like a theory there.
1: Right, right. <laughs> okay,
0: and what's the other theory?
1: And the instructional theory stated that the antibody would come in contact with the antigen and try to fit around it like a glove in your hand. And this implied that the antibodies learn to recognize antigens as they are exposed to them instead of being strictly pre-programmed.
0: Hey, those are the same two theories I learned in high school about how enzymes Mm -hmm. work. I guess the early scientists uh, saw antibodies and enzymes.
1: Very likely that they did.
0: Mm -hmm. Okay, so to summarize, the selective theory stated that our body already has antibodies against different antigens. The antigen would select the B cell that is making the right antibody and which will induce the production of more of those antibodies. On the other hand, the instructional theory stated that the antibody will wait for the antigen to show up then the antibody will go near it and it will try to change itself, change its conformation or shape in order to try to bind to that antigen better.
1: Exactly, that's correct. Over time, as our knowledge about the structure of proteins and their synthesis improved, it was clear that the selective theory was correct. All the aspects of this theory were correct with a small change. When the antigen bound to a membrane-bound antibody on a B cell, it not only induced the B cell to create more of these antibodies, it would also induce proliferation or cell division in the B cell itself. This refined theory was called clonal selection.
0: Uh, is, it, is it because the clone of the B cell that has correct membrane-bound antibody is being selected for division?
1: Exactly. This finding brought us closer to finding out how the immune system worked. Paul Ehrlich was awarded the third Nobel Prize in medicine for his work with antibodies. He shared this prize with... Hey,
0: the third Nobel Prize. That was with Ellie Metnikoff.
1: Yes, for his work in cellular immunity.
0: Isn't it amazing, a few years ago, immunologists were arguing about what's more important, cellular or humoral immunity, and the third Nobel Prize was actually shared by people working in both of these areas.
1: Exactly, science is amazing and the community is important. Well, yeah,
0: it, it is. <laughs> so there's something I want to ask you does our immune system learn with time or is it genetically coded to respond to things in a certain way
1: okay the answer is both of them Ooh. <laughs> <laughs> there are two branches of the immune system called the innate and adaptive immunity the innate immunity is something that you are born with and it's hardwired in your genome The innate immunity is the first line of defense against infection. And the innate immunity components are present before infection and they are not dependent on the type of infection that you have. The very first line of defense that's part of the innate immunity is the skin and the mucous membranes. The skin is not hospitable to many pathogens and gives a physical barrier to the rest of the body. The mucus membranes can block bacteria from accessing the rest of the body because they will become stuck in the mucus. And there's also other immune cells in these areas that will protect the body. And the next barrier to the pathogens are the acidity of the stomach acid, tears, and saliva. And there's also an enzyme called lysozyme, which can break down the cell walls of the pathogens. And this brings me back to our joke from the first episode our tears contain lysozymes so they can be used to lice or kill the bacteria.
0: Come on, you just <laughs> ruined that joke completely. That was so funny.
1: <laughs> well, it was uh, actually a terrible joke to begin with, so sorry to break it to you.
0: Okay, I'm crying but I won't, I won't show it on the podcast. <laughs>
1: yeah, hold it in.
0: <laughs> <laughs> Never mind. So, what would happen if you were bitten by an animal or if you burned a large part of your body? So this would mean there's a breach of this first line of defense and now the things are going to enter in your bloodstream or your tissues what happens then
1: okay so in these cases these normal barriers like you said will not help you so you'll need to rely on other mechanisms of the immune system Mm
0: -hmm. and what are these other mechanisms that you could rely on
1: Some of these mechanisms come from the cell-mediated immunity theory. And these are cells like phagocytes that we talked about before. And these can engulf bacteria and other pathogens and degrade them to stop infection. And some of these cells are blood monocytes, neutrophils, and tissue macrophages. And we'll discuss these in the next episode very likely. Okay. Uh, There are other components that are molecules that can aid if the first line of defense is broken. Some examples are lysozymes, which we talked about, Mm -hmm. interferons, and
0: complement. Okay, for people that may not know, interferons are proteins produced by virus-infected cells Uh, These these molecules can bind to neighboring cells to induce an Antiviral state. So they're basically saying hey, there are viruses around you. So you need to protect yourselves. So uh, Interferons make it easier for the neighboring cells to protect themselves. Similarly, there are other molecules like complements well complement is a very complicated topic, Mm -hmm. but if I had to (laughs) simplify, let's say complements do a bunch of functions like they can damage the membrane of pathogens or they can bind to the cell membrane of the pathogen and tag them for phagocytosis, it's like they're tagging the um, uh, the membrane of the pathogen, and mm-hmm. they're calling these phagocytes to come and engulf these pathogens. Oh, okay. And any molecule that tags a pathogen and acts as a bridge mm-hmm. between the phagocyte and the pathogen is called an opsonin. And this process of bridging the gap between the pathogen and the phagocyte, mm-hmm. this thing is called an op- called opsonization. So complements are good opsonins, mm-hmm. And you know what else is a good opsonin? What? Antibodies.
1: Woo! And that is actually
0: one of the ways how antibodies work.
1: OK. Yeah, they
0: tag these pathogens against which they're raised mm-hmm. for clearance by phagocytes.
1: OK, that's, that's a really awesome job that they do.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: Um, another component of the innate immune system are pattern recognition receptors. These receptors recognize evolutionarily conserved regions of the pathogens. One example is of a conserved region like this is flagella. And these are kind of like bacterial tails. And many bacteria have flagella that they use for movement. And because many motel bacteria share this feature the immune system has developed a way to recognize that there are pathogens in the body based on the presence of flagella and this is just one small example
0: oh and so there must be many more such evolutionarily conserved molecules that the immune system has learned to recognize so that it can quickly set off an immune response whenever they see it
1: exactly, exactly. okay that's
0: very interesting so I see that's how innate immune system works but what about the other half of the immune system, which you said, the adaptive immunity.
1: Okay, so the adaptive immunity is in response to a particular pathogen. And this is the part of the immune system that adapts to fight the pathogen better. For this reason, it takes longer to develop this response because the immune system needs to study the pathogen in a sense. Adaptive immunity is maintained by two major cell cell types. (laughs) T (laughs) and b cells
0: okay so these two cells are very important for adaptive immunity
1: right adaptive specifically and not innate immunity Um, and there are four main characteristics of the adaptive immunity that set it apart from the innate immunity and these are self versus non-self recognition diversity antigen specificity and memory and we're going to start by discussing self versus non-self recognition and it's important it's important for the immune system to be able to recognize which cells are self and which cells are non-self
0: that sounds that sounds interesting uh, we talked about how our immune system learns to tolerate self antigens to prevent an autoimmune response is there any other way our immune system distinguishes self and non self cells?
1: Yes, they do this through a complex called the MHC1, which stands for Major Histocompatibility Complex 1. And you can think of the MHC as an ID card. So every cell has an ID card, but not every cell has the right information on the ID card. So T cells will go around checking each cell's ID card and making sure that they have the information for you written on the card. And if it doesn't have the right information, like a non-self piece of information, mm-hmm. then the cell will be killed by other types of T cells.
0: Okay. and so the t cell this t cell is going to check whether the id card which is mhc1 is expressing the right information or or not Yes. what if the what if the id card this mhc1 molecule is Mm -hmm. not expressed at all
1: okay so if um the there is no mhc1 um, there's another lymphocyte called natural killer cells and those will kill cells that don't have the mhc one or the id card at all and they can detect cancer cells this way too so this is how the immune system will make sure that there are no foreign molecules in the body that are harmful while being tolerant to self-antigens
0: that's that's a very good uh, simplification of the overall concept Yeah. So I will take over from here. (laughs) Let me talk about antigen specificity. Uh, So a simple definition of specificity is the ability to identify something unambiguously. Let me give you an example. Have you seen Kiera Knightley and Natalie Portman? (laughs)
1: Yes. (laughs) Okay.
0: if you can tell them apart, it's because they look very similar, for yeah. the viewers who don't know them, these are two actresses who look very similar. Right. Okay, <laughs> do search from them on Google. <laughs> yeah. So if, uh, so if you can tell them apart, you are being specific. Else you are not, and you are you do not have the ability to distinguish between minor changes. Our adaptive immune system is specific because it can distinguish between very similar molecules.
1: Okay, that makes sense. Mm -hmm. I like your Kira Knightley, (laughs) Natalie Portman analogy. Thank
0: you, thank you. You're
1: welcome. So next, we'll talk about diversity. And diversity in our adaptive arm of the immune system is required to be specific. If we lose the diversity, we also lose specificity. So T and B cells express receptors that can potentially detect billions of different antigens. The B cell receptor is, can you guess it? Hey, I remember those
0: were the membrane bound antibodies.
1: Exactly! The B cells can produce a variety of antibodies, close to a hundred billion variations to be exact, in order to counter almost anything that tries to invade us specifically. Similarly, T cells also have a receptor like that and it's called The T-cell receptor. Oh, that's
0: (laughs) confusing.
1: (laughs) Yeah, we're very creative as immunologists. (laughs) And these receptors are also specific to antigens and can have about 10 billion variations, though they work in a slightly different way than antibodies.
0: Yeah, so T-cells and B-cells, they recognize pathogens in different contexts, and we will discuss them in a future episode when we come to talk specifically about T-cells. Uh, but anyway, this brings us to the last last major component of an adaptive immune system, or last major, let's say, the quality of an immune, uh, the adaptive arm of the immune system, mm-hmm. which is the memory. So, when the B or T cell binds with an antigen that matches its antibody receptor or the T cell receptor, respectively it is able to divide rapidly and take care of the infection. Remember, this is what we learned when we talked about the clonal selection theory. Right. So this first response is called the primary response when the B or T cell first meets this antigen. During the first response, the T D, D and B cells produce daughter cells called memory cells. So a progeny of these specific, these specific clones, they will, they will be called memory cells. These memory cells will last longer than the other progeny of the same T or B cell, mm-hmm. and this cell will become the memory of the adaptive immunity. As I said, since they last longer, mm-hmm. in future, when the infection appears again, these long-lasting memory cells will come back to fight the same infection again, so we don't have to waste time finding the right clone.
1: Okay. Um, and so when the pathogen actually comes back, the response by these memory cells is much faster, and it's called the secondary response because the immune system has already seen this pathogen before, and it, does, it doesn't need to study it anymore like it did in the primary response.
0: Hey, I was going to say that. You stole <laughs> you stole my line. I'm, I am not doing this podcast with you anymore.
1: <laughs> well, that's fine. So back to me. I'll Don't take this me. over. <laughs> um, adaptive immunity is cool. Cool. and uh, thanks to the adaptive immunity, we're able to survive even when new strains of a pathogen ev- evolve in our environment. It
0: is so cool. It so, is. Yeah, so we are the same organism, but despite the mi- the world of microbes being constantly in competition with each other and having to having to mutate their genes, having to come up with new strategies to invade their host, we are still existing on this planet thanks to our adaptive immunity.
1: Right. And because the um, adaptive immunity is all specific inside of each of our bodies Mm -hmm. this is one reason why maybe i'll get sick from something but you won't get sick from it because Mm -hmm. you have different specificity than i do inside
0: my body that that's right and yeah we'll also discuss about how how certain individuals have different responses to pathogens even though we are all human beings
1: right and we all have the innate and adaptive that's right that's right yeah
0: so I hope everyone learns something from this episode. We'll be back next week to talk about the birth of immune system. Woohoo. Woo-hoo. <laughs> It'll be an interesting discussion about how the immune system is formed and what are its core constituents. Let us know what you would like to hear about specifically. It could be a certain topic or a research paper and we will try our best to add it to the episode in whatever way possible.
1: You can email us at antibuddies1 at gmail.com, which is spelled A-N-T-I-B-U-D-D-I-E-S, and then the number one at gmail.com.
0: Yes, please. Any any questions we will appreciate and we'll definitely answer them in our next episode. You can also reach us through Facebook at antibuddies, which is A-N-T-I-B-U-D-D-I-E-S
1: or Twitter at Antibuddies1. Same spelling, number one. I hope you all have a great week ahead.
0: See you all soon, bye bye. Bye.